Uh, good morning. Acts chapter 10, please, in your Bibles. Acts chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 34 to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 10. Um, I am trying to, I, in preparing for this morning, I was trying to think of a time where the, the church and my exposure to the gospel wasn't present. And thank the Lord, I, I could not conceive of a time in my own memory of when I just wasn't in church. Um, it's, it is not because of my parents directly uh, to begin with. It's because of, well, I guess it is in the sense that they said, hey, uh, Papa, will you take Rob <laughs> as a three-year-old to church with you so we can have some peace and quiet as, you know, as parents? And that is what my mother's father did. He took me to First Baptist Church of Boyle, Mississippi, um, and uh, faithfully suffered through the worship service with a squirmy three-year-old boy. I remember the games he would draw on a little notepad to keep me occupied because he knew I wasn't going to pay attention at all to the, to the sermon. Um, I, I remember uh, when he passed away and when I was five or six years old and my mother picked up the mantle and took me to First Baptist Cleveland uh, where we lived. Um, and I remember in the children's ministry there being exposed to the gospel again and again through all of the programs that we did in the 70s and 80s um, in Southern Baptist Church life. So I was in music makers and I was in Bible drills and I was in all of these things um, over and over again just being exposed to the gospel. So I don't think my mother was surprised at all when as a fourth grader on my sitting in my room by myself and in in just hanging out, in the, sitting on my bed, playing, talking in my mind because I'm an introvert even as a 10-year-old and I'm very happy in my own mind um, even at that age. And my mother walked by my bedroom and came in and I said, Mom, I'm ready to join the church. And she said, okay, well, we'll talk to Pastor Jimmy about that. And so, or Pastor Street, excuse me, uh, about, about that. And, uh, and sure enough, I went into Pastor Street's office and he walked right through John 3.16 with me. And he explained the gospel. And I said, that sounds great. Um, also, I want to get baptized like my friend Darby did. Can I do that too, right? Because that was an impetus for me. And uh, sure, we're going to do that. And I remember getting ready for baptism. And I, and I remember thinking, like, I was going to have this vision. I was, I was going to see something spiritual in this moment. And when, when Pastor Jim Street baptized me, I did. I, ha- I saw something in my mind. You know you want to know what I saw? It was really holy. <laughs> it was really spiritual. I saw my... my uh, preschool Sunday school teacher at First Baptist Boyle, when my grandfather took me, I saw her standing over me with just her face and her hands, and she was doing like this. <laughs> so apparently the woman was either very holy or very terrifying. I'm not really sure it went. It's like, why did I, 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 I still remember, I'm 46 years old, I still have questions like, why did I see this? in this very spiritual moment of my, of my life. So that is, in effect, a, that's not, it's not all the details, but that's my conversion story. That is the moment in which I became a, a Christian. Now, lots to figure out when you're 10, lots to figure out when you're 46. But that was the moment that I look back on and say, yes, Lord, that is when I came to an understanding of who you were and who I was 
and how you took action to make me right with you by grace through faith. Whatever that is, that's when that happened. And we've all, if you're a Christian, you, we all have our, our stories, our experiences, the circumstances, the people, the doctrine, whatever it may be that come to life. And when you contemplate your own conversion story, it, it can, and it should, it should raise questions about how this happened, right? Like, what, what, um, at what point did I actually become a Christian? Is it, was it at 10 when I had this conversation with my mother or when I was baptized? Was it when I was 19 and I read, you know, uh, or 20 years old and I read Mere Christianity and every, all the lights started to come on theologically? Was it when I stopped sinning in certain ways? Like, when did this happen? How did it happen? So the reason we're going to look at Acts 10, 34 through following, is in part because, it's, the reason we're doing it is, is because it answers some of those questions. It doesn't answer all of those questions. But if we, if we look at different parts of this text, we're going to see as the narrative unfolds questions about conversion, how it happens, how it gets started, what are the, what are the things that, that give you some confidence that conversion is taking place. So let's stand together and read Acts 10, 34 through uh, 48. Acts 10, 34 through 48. Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation the person who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. He sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how He went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with Him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything He did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed Him by hanging Him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day, caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins." And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and they declared the greatness of God. And then Peter responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. So there, there are four questions that, I, I, that we're going to see in the text about conversion. And the first one that I wanted to address today is where does conversion begin? Where does it begin? And if, we're, if you'll look in the text with me, you will see that conversion begins with God. That the change in the life of a human being that makes him or her a child of God, God initiates that change, not the other way around. So look at verse 29. Peter says, can I, we're going to skip, go back up to 1030, 1029 and 1030. Peter says, 
Can I ask you, Cornelius, why, why, you've, why, why you guys have sent for me? And, and, and Cornelius explains in verse 30 why, why he sent. Look what he says. He says, four days ago, at this hour, at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. And just then, a man in dazzling clothing stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore... Send someone to Joppa and invite Simon, Peter, here. He is lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. And so Cornelius says, so immediately I sent for you. So Cornelius is the one whose salvation that we're, we were reading about at the end of chapter 10. And so Cornelius is this Gentile. He's the one who has had this vision that he's just explained, that a man in dazzling clothing has stood before him and given him a specific order. So you can see that from from the position of Cornelius and his salvation, it's not Cornelius saying, I initiated a relationship with God seeking after him. It was, no, I was doing my own thing and God sent this dazzling man in white clothes initiating a relationship with me. Cornelius' conversion takes place because God initiated a relationship with him. Cornelius wasn't searching. He wasn't seeking Cornelius had a really good life, and he was very happy with himself. And God intervened and said, send for Peter. Now, in this particular instance, uh, the way this initiation takes place is in the form of this, like it's a vision. It's this dazzling white, it's very odd, very unusual. Um, this, that is, when I, so when I say that God is initiating that, that conversion starts with God's initiation. I don't want you to think that God initiation for you should have been or may be a vision with a man and really bright white clothes. And, uh, it's, and it's a stunning you know, theophany. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that this story is descriptive of God initiating, not prescriptive of how he actually goes about doing it. But what we do see in the Bible, over and over again about conversion is this, that there's always this place where the converted person realizes that whatever searching he or she was doing, they realize that that search was predicated on God searching for them first. You might not see it right away. You might not see it until way later. But eventually, every person who experiences conversion looks back and says, you know, I thought that I was searching for God, but when I look back, I realized the whole time he was just searching for me. C.S. Lewis, in his um, autobiography, has this really great quote that I, I just found so helpful to understand this, this, this issue. He says, amiable agnostics, friendly people who are indifferent to God, will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. But to me, they may as well be talking about a mouse's search for a cat which, of course, doesn't happen. The mouse doesn't search for the cat. The cat searches for the mouse. And Lewis's point is, as a newly converted agnostic to the faith, he said, we don't search for God unless God first comes and does something in our hearts to pull us toward him. That was the case for Cornelius. It was the case for Lewis. And in my case, it was the case for me. And it's the case for you if you believe. Now, let's, I want to get... I want to get really practical right now on that point. 
when I was uh, when I was in uh, college and grad school, my my parents divorced when I was a senior in high school, and kind of, you know went because it was a divorce, they went their separate ways. And um, eventually, my mother landed this a really cool job as a pharmaceutical sales representative. Has anybody here ever been a pharmaceutical sales representative? No. Okay. So she was a drug dealer. Is the way we like to talk about it. Um, so it was a great job. So she got to go around to all these different uh, doctors' offices and throw all these parties and web. You know, well, I call them webinars now. But like in a restaurant, she would serve these really nice meals, and 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 she her trunk was full of drugs, of samples, and her garage was full of samples. And so whenever I would visit uh, from from grad school. And she would have all these drugs in her garage. And we were just, like, catching up on life. I'm like, so I would, like, go through her inventory. Because I've always found pharmaceuticals really interesting. And I would say, oh, you know, what's this drug do? And she would tell me the name of it and what it was for. And I, what this drug do or whatever it's for? And I remember one of these conversations. I opened up a, uh, a box that had uh, the drug was called Boost Bar, B-U-S-P-B-A-R. And I said, Mom, what is Boost Bar? And she just stopped and stared at me. And she said, Rob? You are the poster child for Boost Bar. It's an anti-anxiety medication. So <laughs> that's funny. You're supposed to laugh. Like I, I wrote down, ha 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 ha. Uh, in the, it's in the script right here. Pause for laughter, and you all messed it up. There you go. Right. Her point was like she knew me really well, and she knew me as a grad student. That I was the poster child for anti-anxiety medication. Now I say that because. This truth that God initiates, God starts, God begins, it is the spiritual boost bar. It is doctrinal anti-anxiety medication. Because if you're really on a search, if you're really on a search, if you're really trying to find God and you're really trying to know God, if you really want to know Him, you don't have to search with anxiety. You can search with confidence because you know that your search is a response to His. That the sense of absence that you have about God is actually a sign of His presence working in your life. And that brings peace. That is the spiritual boost bar for the soul. It's really good news. So the first thing that we learn from this story, of the many, many things we can learn, is that Christian conversion starts with God's initiative. The second thing we learn about conversion is that it's contrary to religion. It is contrary to religion. Look back up at verse 30. Cornelius said, four days ago at three in the afternoon... I was praying in my house, and just then a man in dazzling clothing stood before me and said, hone in here, Cornelius, your prayer, it's a Gentile, your prayer has been heard, your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight, therefore send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here, who is named Peter, he's lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. So do you see the relationship between religion and morality and conversion. So the angel says, it's very, it's very important. Your prayer has been heard. Your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, keep it up. Therefore, take it to another level. You're almost there. That's not what he says. He says, your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, 
Go get Peter. And what's Peter going to tell him? Jesus. He's going to tell him about Jesus. He's going to preach the gospel to him. So Cornelius' morality, Cornelius' religion was not a compliment to his conversion, but it was contrary to his conversion. The message to Cornelius was, you're, not, you're such a good dude, so you don't need Jesus. It was, you're such a good dude, and you need Jesus. Which means that conversion is not a call to straighten your life out. When I, when I call you today to be converted and believe in the Lord Jesus, it is not to get your life straight so that Jesus will admire you and send an angel to affirm you. That's not what it is. Conversion is a call to trust in Jesus, which is contrary to trusting in your own acts of righteousness, which we call religion. So let's pause there and go ahead and jump right into the application of this point. I want you to understand the implications of this. So if you meet somebody and you're kind of, you know, for the first time, maybe they're a new neighbor or, you know, somebody you work with, and, and, you, and you figure out, like, they're a good person, you know, they're pretty moral, they're an upstanding citizen, you know, they, are you more or less likely to presume that because they are moral and they live in the South, are you going to just assume they're a Christian? Do we understand that morality and virtue are signs of conversion and signs of religion? And you've got to get to the details of the gospel to know which is which. Do we recognize the tremendous irony of the gospel, namely that heaven could be filled with people who have lived terrible lives most of their time on earth because the gospel is true? And do we also understand the irony that hell could be full of people who lived outstanding, upstanding moral lives their entire life? Because conversion is not morality. It does not get your life straight. It's contrary to religion. It's contrary to morality. It is believe in Jesus. My, um, I've, as Bonnie, I think is her name, I met two, two or three weeks ago. And she asked me in the business meeting about, you know, who are some of your favorite authors. And I just started chronologically, and I started with C.S. Lewis. I, I'm, I got another book from him now that I'm get, I want to share with you. So my, it is my favorite C.S. Lewis book, and it's called The Great Divorce. It's a, it's a fable. It's a, it's a fiction work. Um, it's a parable about a busload of people um, who are in hell. And the shape, their bodies are not bodies. They're, they're ghosts. So you can, they're, they're you know, translucent. You can kind of see through them. You see their shape. They're ghosts. You, you know, a ghost. And they get on a bus, and they go from hell to just outside of heaven. And they are able to uh, traverse the area a little bit. And because they're ghosts, and because heaven is actually very solid to them, it's like very uncomfortable. The grass that looks and feels like grass to people who are in heaven is actually really sharp and hard and abrasive and hurts their, their ghost feet. Um, and the people who come out to meet them, who are in heaven, you know, they're, they're coming out to meet them. And they're bright, like this person in, in uh, Acts chapter 10. So the book is about all the ways um, that we fi- fail to find God. It's about all the excuses we make to not be converted, to not, to not give our lives to Jesus. And by, by 
by all stretch of the imagination, my favorite one is this little uh, snippet that I want to read to you. There's this place in the book where one of these ghosts meets a person and he recognizes, the ghost recognizes him. They recognize each other. And the, the, uh, the person from heaven is a murderer. He, is, he literally has killed someone that this person is like a family member of this ghost. And the murderer is in heaven and the really upstanding moral citizen is in hell and they're having a conversation about how that could have been the case. The ghost says, look at me now. And he slaps his chest, but it made no noise. I've gone straight all of my life. I don't say I didn't have any faults, but I've done my best all my life. I've done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap that I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it, and I took my wages if I've done my job. You see, that's just the sort of person I was. And the person from heaven says, it would be much better if you wouldn't talk like that because you're never going to get here like that. And he says, well, what's going on? I'm not arguing. I've, I've just got to have my rights. Same as you, see? And the, the person from heaven says, no, it's, it's not as bad as that. I haven't gotten my rights, and you will not get yours either. You're going to get something far better. And he says, well, that's just what I say. I haven't gotten my, my rights. I've always done my best. I've never done anything wrong. And, and what I don't see is why I should be put down in hell down below, and you, a bloody murderer, should be up here. And the murderer says, well, who knows whether you will be. Just be happy and and come with me. And he says, what do you keep arguing for? I just want my rights. I don't want your bleeding charity. To which the the person from heaven says, well, you need the, the bleeding charity, capital B, capital C. Everything is here for the asking. You cannot buy anything. And the gentleman says, well, that may be very well for you. If they choose to let in a bloody murderer all because he made a poor mouth at the last moment, that's their lookout. I don't want charity. I'm a decent man. And if I had my rights, I'd have been here long ago. And you can tell them I said so. See, if the gospel is true, then your conversion doesn't begin until you realize the difference between what it means to be born again and what it means to be good what it means to be moral, and what it means to be religious. So that's how conversion stands against or contrary to morality. But how does it take place? Look at verses 44 through 46. The answer is it takes place by the Spirit. Skip to verse 44. Peter, while he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all who heard this message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and declaring the greatness of God. So it would be, of course, that the part of the passage that easily answers the question about how this happened, which is the Spirit, would also let me talk about speaking in tongues. So I'm really excited about that. Um, You're supposed to giggle. I just wrote right here. Look at verse 44. It describes the Holy Spirit coming down. Verse 45 describes the Holy Spirit being poured out, and there are two results from this. One is speaking in tongues. See that? And the other is declaring the greatness of God in verse 46. Now, those two things, speaking in tongues and declaring the greatness of God, are 
in this particular instance, two very important markers of genuine conversion. And what it, what's most important for you to understand is that they're brought about by the Holy Spirit. Now, the second one, the greatness of God, that is true for all of you. A mark of the Holy Spirit's life converting you is you declaring the greatness of God, which I'm going to come to in just a moment. But I, I feel like we need to address the whole speaking in tongues thing. It's actually really quite simple. This came up in our text in our Sunday school class today upstairs. So there are lots of places in the book of Acts where people are converted. The, the whole, I mean, that's the purpose of the book is to show how the gospel went out uh, across, uh, across the world. Uh, and, and show people being converted. And this text is the only place other than Acts 2 where the Spirit comes and there is speaking in tongues. It didn't happen to Paul. I think we can all agree Paul was a Christian, right? It didn't happen when the Ethiopian became a Christian. It doesn't happen anywhere else in the Gospels, anywhere in the book of Acts, anywhere else in the New Testament. But it happens here. So there are a number of other times where the Holy Spirit's mentioned it comes down. The Holy Spirit does come down on Paul, but there's no speaking in tongues. It comes down on the apostles in Acts 4, but there's no speaking in tongues. But there is here. There is here. Now, why? So this may have come up in your group this morning, but if you look ahead in your Bible, go to chapter 11 and look at verse 15, verse 14 and 15. If you peek ahead there, Peter is recounting this story that we're studying. And he's telling the Jews in Jerusalem about what happened. And he says in verse 15 that as I began to speak, as I preached the gospel, the Holy Spirit came down on them. Look what it says. Just as on us at the beginning. So you see what Peter's doing. He is equating his experience with Cornelius right here, which is what happened back in Acts 2. He's happening that experience with Pentecost. He says, what happened to me and Cornelius in that moment is exactly like what happened to us back in Acts 2 at Pentecost. So in Acts 2, when they opened their mouths to speak the gospel to all the people, everybody heard Peter, everybody heard everybody else speaking in the language, their native language. That was the gift. That was the the gift of tongues in that moment. And everybody heard the gospel in their own language. So in the most vivid way possible with Peter, In Cornelius, God was saying to them, there is no language, therefore there's no culture that is more appropriate of a vehicle for the gospel than any other. It's not about Judaism, it's about all peoples, all ethnos. So this moment in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 is not a theological thing, it's a sociological thing. The Holy Spirit brings conversion And in this particular moment, these folks have a little Pentecost, and it's a teaching moment for Peter that there's no language, there's no culture, there's no better people group or religious vehicle needed for the gospel than any other. Okay, That's what's going on there. But it's the Spirit who brings this about. And in this particular moment, yes, they're speaking in tongues, but there is this last part in verse 46 that is so... So beautiful. They heard them speaking in tongues and they declared the greatness of God. In that moment, Cornelius' ultimate value changed. As a soldier, his ultimate value was Caesar. In Caesarea, his ultimate value was Rome. But not anymore. It's not Caesar. It's not Rome. It's not family. It wasn't approval. It wasn't duty. It wasn't country. 
In this moment, when the Holy Spirit comes into his life, the greatest value of his life is God and what he's done. And he ascribes it to him in that moment. Now let's get practical. Everybody on the face of the earth is looking for something to place the ultimate source of value, ultimate source of meaning, ultimate source of happiness. And that's... um, And whatever that is, that's (laughs) that's what we worship. Whatever is most important to you is what you are worshiping. So if you were living for people's approval in Enneagram 3, you're controlled by what people think of you. If the main thing that you worship is power, then you're controlled by status. You're controlled by money. You're controlled by things. Whatever it is that can give you power. I can go on and on down the list from Enneagram 1 to Enneagram 9. We are controlled by what our heart most values, what it adores, what it praises, and we cannot change unless we worship. What we worship is what changes. That's how change comes about. You have to change what you worship. Let me say that again. That's how you change. You change what you worship. No other change will amount to conversion unless you change who is your worship. And so that's why this is the mark. This is the mark of true conversion. The Holy Spirit makes your life about He who is most valuable. That's the mark. Lastly, how? How is conversion brought about? And the answer is through the gospel. Look at verse 37 through 43. Peter's gospel presentation. This is amazing. We we skip over this. We have so many ways of trying to talk about Jesus. This is a really good example of just keeping it simple. Keep it simple, stupid, right? Look at verse 37. You know the events that took place through Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised him up on the third day, caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by those whom God appointed as witnesses. He ate with them, he drank with them, and he after he rose from the dead, and he commanded us to preach the gospel, to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead, and all the prophets testify him about through his name Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. So here's what Peter is saying. I'm not offering you this as a philosophy, Cornelius. I'm not offering you this as one option among other ways that you might come to understand who God is. What I'm telling you is, if you want to be converted, Jesus was here. This is who he is. This is what happened. This is what he did. And this is what you must believe. The conversion comes about because we share the gospel with people. It's facts. It's not, it's not an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's not a, it's not a theory. It's not, it's not a cognitive belief system. It's trust and belief in the actual historical presence of God doing this in Jesus. Flannery O'Connor. Oh, I love Flannery. She was a, a Catholic Christian writer of the deep south, kind of a gothic, dark kind of person. But she, she had such a way with words. And she said, Christianity is worthless if it's not true. 
I mean, I suppose that could be true of many things, ironically. But, but if, if we come to the conclusion accidentally or out of, as a matter of indifference, or we just kind of stumble into it, if we come to the conclusion that what we really believe here is just a bunch of, 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 of moral things, of virtue, this is... Ah, I want to say this really carefully. Because the, the New Testament is full of virtue. It's, there's fruit of the Spirit. There's tons of fruit of the Spirit. But here's the thing. If we talk about the virtue and we separate them from the historicity of who Jesus is and what he has done, then we are just a cult. Okay? The difference between virtue or religion that's good and Christianity is that it's based in the historicity of who Jesus is and what he has done. If God didn't become a man, lived the life that we couldn't live, paid the price that we could never pay, and then rise from the dead to defeat sin, then all the virtues we believe and practice are worthless. Okay? So it's worthless if it's not true. She means the history of Jesus. I'll give you an example of this So, as a way of conclusion. So I made the terrible mistake, and I do mean terrible mistake, of getting into a comment thread on an article on Christian Post this week about conversion. Because then I got email after email after email of people arguing with me about how you shouldn't be able to tell if someone's a Christian or not, and blah, 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 blah. And I finally just had to, like, block all the things. So, But there was this story in the, in the Christian Post um, about uh, a celebrity or the son of a celebrity named Chet. The name is this, the son. His name is Chet, and his father's very famous. If you you would know, you would know everything he's uh, starred in probably. And the the article's title was something to the effect of, uh, you know, celebrity's son converted after you know so and this experience. So I was like, okay, I'll clickbait. I'll take I'll take the dive. So here is this person's explanation of his conversion. He said, I went off and I sat on the edge of this cliff and I was just looking out at the view. And as I was looking out at that view and I was looking at where I had been from an elevated perspective, meaning his physical hike, because I'd been stuck in this desert for 12 weeks at a rehab facility and it just down there just looked ugly and boring when I was down there and there was nothing to look at. But now I'm up here at an elevated view, and I'm looking at it from an elevated perspective at the top of this mountain. And he said, there I was so overcome by the beauty surrounding me, looking out 360 degrees as far as I could see, and there was not a speck of humanity that I could see for miles. So I'm looking around, and I'm overcome by emotion. And it felt like I was touched by the hand of God. And it was at that moment that God revealed himself to me. All that anger... That hate, that resentment flipped. It inverted to infinite hope, gratitude, peace, and love. It flipped on a dime, just like that. And I was so overcome by emotion, I just sat on the edge of that cliff and I wept. I wept for an hour, uncontrollable weeping for like an hour. It did not cease. Tears of joy, tears of everything, feeling every emotion at once, all the pain and all the joy. There's something missing from this testimony, namely the gospel. I don't know who God is. It's a figment of his imagination, of his mind. We don't know from the story whether he's a Christian or not. I'm not, not 
It's not, that's not the point. My point is, when we read an article like this, do we hear biblical conversion, or do we hear something that warrants a conversation about what it means to be converted? And the issue is, it's the latter. So that's something just really practical I'm taking away from this text, is it's giving me a filter to hear people's testimonies, to look back at my own testimony and say, do I believe in the historicity of Jesus, who he is and what he has done? Do I exhibit in my life, mark the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Am I, am I growing in my relationship with God? Am I, can I look at the virtues and know that I'm not trusting in the virtues, but the virtues are making me all the more grateful for who Jesus is and what he has done? It's given me a filter for that for my own life and to listen to others. And it's given me the words to say and to share in the moment when someone says, well, what is the deal with you and your church and your Christianity? Like, what is it that you actually believe? Well, let me, let me tell you what I believe. And there they are. Here's the things right here. You believe God initiates. You believe it's not about religion. You believe it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And you believe it is the historicity of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I just, I'm reflecting on Peter's just incredible, simple, direct explanation Cornelius, a religious person, a good person. Angels acknowledge his morality, and they tell him, you've got to hear the gospel. And Peter, of all the disciples, of all the ones who who could completely ruin this moment, based upon his own life experience, the mercy that you showed in his life, to raise him up for this moment and share the good news of Jesus to Cornelius is so empowering and so encouraging to us who, in this day and age, in this culture, we just need to be talking about who you are and what you've done and let the words speak for themselves and that you would call us to make us a part of this mission is so incredibly encouraging and it leads to a life of gratitude and joy. So, Father, use this text to help us reflect on our own conversion experience, to lead us to seek after you and respond by grace through faith to you in the gospel. And give us the the words, give us the confidence, give us the boldness to share who you are and what you've done with those that we run into on a regular basis in our life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.